It's so good to be able to be here tonight. My name's Sarah. I'm part of the team here at St. Nick's. I'm married to Rich, and we have a nine-month-old little boy, um, which is why I haven't been able to be in the evening for a while. I'm, like, buzzing. Mum is out, and she's so excited. Um, this is so thrilling to be here this evening. Yeah, uh, we've actually lived in Bristol for five years this weekend. I can always remember it because it's the Balloon Festival, and I think it's maybe happened twice since we've been here because it does always seem to rain, doesn't it? Such a shame. Um, but yeah, so excited to have spent five years in this brilliant city. And um, when Toby asked me if I would continue our series and heroes of the Old, Fest uh, the Old Testament, the Old Testament tonight, I was like, yes. I would love to speak on one of only two books in the Bible named after a woman. I am a huge fan of Esther. Um, and this is partly because I grew up in a Christian household. So I became a Christian when I was like five. Um, and I grew up in a Christian family in the 90s and 2000s, which means that I watched a lot of something called Veggie Tales. Okay, few, not just me, a uh, few fans in the room. And if you don't know what this is, it's basically Bible stories acted out by animated vegetables. Um, the main characters, I think, were Larry the Cucumber and Bob the Tomato. Um, yeah, really bizarre. Check it out after this. But one of my favorite veggie tales was about Esther. She is a spring onion with an epic power ballad. So that's one reason. Another reason I love Esther is because when I was 14, I got the opportunity to be part of this um, touring musical that was put on by a company called MGM. Um, they called it Love Esther, spelled L-U-V. Love Esther. Remember when we used to do that? Um, and I got to be in the ensemble twice and totally fell in love with singing and all things musicals. And you will be happy to know that I have checked and there is no photographic or video evidence of this sort of thing that happened in my awkward teenage years. The 2000s were a wild time for me. <laughs> and the final reason I love Esther is because I love a bit of history. I'm a bit of a history geek, and I'm not ashamed about it at all. Um, I particularly love some classical history, kind of Greeks and Romans. Um, one of my favorite films is 300, and I loved learning about King Xerxes in that when he wasn't a courgette, like in Veggie Tales. Um, and yeah, realizing there's so much more more to the story. So I thought we would start off with a little bit of context because there's so much going on in the Old Testament. Um, so we're going to around 605 BC. The Jewish people are captured and taken into, um, they're taken to another country. So they're living in exile still a hundred years later um, in somewhere called the Persian Empire which includes countries like Egypt, Iran, India, Afghanistan, Pakistan. And then it's around the same time as the ancient Greeks. So the Jewish people were a minority in the Persian Empire and were viewed with suspicion and sometimes faced threats to their existence. And we meet Esther in Susa, which is one of the capitals of the Persian Empire during the reign of King Xerxes, uh, which was about 486 to 464 BC. Um, 
and King Xerxes, pretty interesting guy. Um, so he wasn't actually the eldest son of his father, so he wasn't meant to be king, but he looked the most king-like and acted the most king-like and was pretty intimidating. So he was chosen to be the heir. And to give you kind of an idea of what that looked like, um, he tried to invade Greece a lot. It wasn't always great. And one time, his whole fleet of ships got sunk. And so he decided to punish the sea um, by getting it whipped with chains 300 times and then poked with hot pokers. Yeah, not sure how that worked. Um, But he's not someone who is used to being crossed. But that's exactly what happens at the start of our story. So in Esther 1, in the book of Esther, um, King Xerxes is throwing six months of parties towards the beginning of his reign. And he decides on one particularly wild night that he wants his wife to be invited for once. But not because he misses her, but because he just thinks everyone should have a look at his property. And she says, no. And like everyone's like, oh, she said no to the king. What if all the other women in the empire did this too? That would be awful. We must make an example. So she is deposed. She's no longer queen. And Xerxes needs to choose a new queen, which he thinks is a very good idea. And the book of Esther tells us how a Jewish girl becomes queen of Persia and then saves her people from a plot to destroy them. She's assisted in this by her uncle Mordecai, who's her cousin and guardian. So that's a little bit of context. Hopefully we know kind of where we're at. School's over. Um, But if I'm honest, I've told you loads of reasons why I wanted to talk about Esther, but I actually didn't want to talk about Esther because it feels a bit close to home for me at the moment. Um, As I mentioned five years ago, we moved to Bristol, um, but my family and I are actually about to take on a brand new adventure. We are moving to Zurich in Switzerland in September. Um, My husband Rich has been offered an incredible job there, and we decided as a family that it's too much of an incredible opportunity to miss. And so, yeah, we're relocating there next month. And at first glance, you might say, wow, that's amazing. That's so cool. And you wouldn't be wrong. um, But I have found the loss of home, church, uh, community, friends, career, in order to make that move possible, really difficult. Um, And I'm in quite an unexpected place. It's been quite a shock for me. And as a control freak, it goes against every single fiber of my being. (laughs) And that's why I love Esther, because the book of Esther is one of those two books in the Bible where God's name is not mentioned. It's a book for those who are wondering, who feel that God is maybe a bit absent or distanced or removed. It's for those who are longing for more. Other people hear God. You don't. Others say they know God's will. You're bewildered. Perhaps you're even wondering if God is really there or if he cares about you at all. If that's you, I hope that some of what I can share tonight um, will show you that you're not alone and actually that God is still eloquent when he seems most distant and he's active when he's silent. 
And so I've chosen to kind of look quite early on in the story of Esther. We love to read a bit later where she saves the whole of the Jewish people. That's brilliant. But um, I actually wanted to start off at the beginning. So we're going to go to Esther 2, verses 1 to 17. So if you've got a Bible, you might want to turn that. I think it's going to come up on screens. We've also got some handy Bibles over there if you really fancy a paper one. Um, so yeah, why don't we turn to Esther 2, verses 1 to 17. And it says this. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti, the first queen, and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. She's not queen. Uh, Then the king's personal attendings proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now, there was in the citadel of Caesar a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jah, son of Shimei, son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, along with those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman was also known as Esther, and had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter, and when her father and mother had died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendings selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendings to the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was doing and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted to was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, she would return to another part of the harem to the care of Shahazgash. The king's eunuch who was in charge of concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to the king Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any other woman, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti.
So Esther, she's not had an easy start to life. She's an orphan, she's part of a minority group living in exile, and we don't really know much about what Esther hoped for her life. Perhaps she wanted a home or a family of her own, perhaps she had a skill, maybe she was a creative. What we can be fairly certain of is that she didn't imagine she would be forced to become one of the king's concubines. And in case you're wondering what that means, King Xerxes had many women that he used for sexual pleasure. So a concubine was a woman acquired by a man to be secondary to his wife. So their role was higher than a slave, but lower than a wife. And any children that she had would be illegitimate, so she had no control over them. Um, but, and she had very little control over her own future as well, and was not free to marry or live outside of the king's harem. It makes for really uncomfortable reading. And sadly, we know that women around the world today are still trafficked into sexual slavery and forced into prostitution as a result of abuse and poverty. And for many of us, we cannot possibly imagine what that would be like. But we do find ourselves, in, at one point in another, in unexpected situations where the finality of the present can just feel like too much to bear. Perhaps we are not where we imagined we would be by now. We long to rearrange time and space and get consumed imagining all those moments that will no longer be. I have been very caught up in the if-onlys. And I imagine that Esther had much to grieve for the life that she could have lived. And I think that this longing that so many of us experience is the fear of missing out. In verse 8, we read that when Esther is forcibly taken, she is brought to the citadel of Caesar and placed under the care of Haggai. She's pulled out of her day-to-day -day and taken to a brand new, very specific location. And when she's there, um, she goes through treatment. So it says in verse 12, before a young woman's turn came to go to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfume and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. Now, one place I do often want to be is the spa. I love going to the spa. And a few years ago, um, Rich and I, we were really kindly gifted this like weekend spa break. Um, it was in this like hotel, which had this multi-sensory spa experience. There were like 10 different rooms, lots of different sorts of saunas and steam rooms and ice things. And I was so excited to meander around for a whole weekend, going from sauna to steam room and back again. And so we arrive. We lay on the chair. We've made it. Rich goes for a swim. It's idyllic. And 10 minutes later, he comes back and he says, let's go and experience all the different multi-sensory rooms. And I'm like, I mean, we just got here, but sure. Maybe he's just really excited and wants to explore it all. And then we're going to kind of chill and take our time. And so we go around the spa and within half an hour, we have done everything. We've been to the sauna, the steam room, the ice bath, some sort of thing where you lie down and look at lights that twinkle. We've done everything and we get back to the lounger. Here we go. Now we relax. And Rich turns to me and says, so what do we do now? And I was like, well, 
now, now we're going to do the spa bit. We're going to relax and chill out. And he said, but we already did that. <laughs> it's safe to say that Rich and I spar quite differently. Um, for Rich, it's absolutely impossible for him to relax in a spa. It's just not his thing because he has mega FOMO. He always wants to go on to the next thing. Um, sitting around just isn't the one for him. Um, he gets huge FOMO. It's an understatement to even call it that. And he constantly challenges me to see God at work out of my very carefully planned life. Um, but I think that Rich and I can both agree that being sent to a spa for 12 months so that you're good enough to meet a king would not be for either of us. Not just because we would get bored like Rich, but because we want our lives to be about a bit more than that. And I think many of us have this deep fear of missing out. We are conditioned and bombarded by the world to live our best life, to kind of be our best self, do everything to the best it can possibly be. And we constantly feel like we're missing the mark. We worry that because of our location, our house, our family, our life stage, the course choice we made at uni or our relationship status, that our lives somehow diminish in value and we're missing out on our purpose. Maybe we just didn't expect life at this moment to look or feel like this. We can struggle with feeling completely overstretched and outside of our comfort zone or unfulfilled and bored all at the same time. And I think we see all of those things in Esther's story. But what strikes me is that instead of becoming bitter or giving into the anxiety of her situation, which would be so understandable, we see in verse 15 that Esther won the favor of all those around her, including Haggai and ultimately King Xerxes. Esther responds to her situation differently. She sees opportunity in interruption. Oh, what a challenge that is to us, at least it is to me, to see unwelcome interruptions as the spirit at work. When a coworker wants to talk to you, but you're buried in a stack of work and you've got a deadline, when you see someone upset on the bus, but you don't want to make things awkward by going and talking to them, or if your baby wakes up in the middle of the night crying for food and you just want to sleep, what if we saw these moments as interruptions, as opportunities? What would happen through us if we welcome the Spirit into our day-to-day? Esther's story reminds us that the answer to our fear of missing out is to daily trust the pace of our lives to Jesus and to trust that where God has placed us is not random, but it's actually significant. There is purpose to the street that you live in, the family that you're a part of, the job that you do, the life stage that you're in. Just a quick caveat to say um, that if you're experiencing any form of abuse or neglect, that is not what you're called into, and we would love to point you in the direction of help. You can find out our safeguarding officer's details on the back of the toilet doors. Um, but yeah, please do speak up. But God can use our obedience wherever we are. And the story of Esther shows us that these day-to-day acts of obedience infused by God with meaning because of Jesus allow us to be part of something so much greater than ourselves. We see in Esther's story that sometimes the things we cannot understand in the present will have remarkable future impact. I know that there are things I've experienced that I will never understand, and I'm sure that's the same for many of you. 
But Esther's story gives us hope that our small acts of devotion in the day-to-day can be used as part of God's much greater narrative. Esther's placed in that palace for a purpose. She becomes Xerxes' queen, and so when a genocide against the Jewish people is planned, she is in position to speak out, and as her cousin says in Esther 4.16, and who knows, but that you came to your royal position for such a time as this. And Esther's act of devotion doesn't just save the lives of the Jewish people, but it ensures that the bloodline of Jesus continues making the opportunity for salvation for us possible, for a life that has purpose possible for each one of us. Esther's small choice to trust at the beginning of the book has nation-saving consequences. And God chooses a woman, a powerless woman, an orphan, a refugee to come and liberate his people in a misogynistic society. How good is that? Once again, God places value on women. And so my challenge and our challenge today is to reframe our thinking and say to God, here I am. What's the plan then for where you've placed me? Help me to make space to be interrupted by the Spirit and to live my life not with the fear of missing out, but the faith that God can and will use my everyday devotion for his glory and to build his kingdom. Because Esther's story shows us that God can use anyone, anywhere, if we invite the Spirit into our day-to-day and release our plans and trust God with our future. Because we are part of the same story as Esther. And in this story, God has called and chosen you. He always has a person and you're it. He has a Joseph for every famine, a David for every Goliath. When his people need rescuing, God calls Rahab into service. When Moses needs saving, God prompts an Egyptian princess to have compassion. He always has a person. He had an Esther for the Jews in Persia. And in his story, he has you. You are positioned where you are right now, and it's not random, and you've not been forgotten. Your street, your life stage, your family, your work are an opportunity to see the kingdom of God come about. God is not absent. He is working in the detail, and you have not been forgotten. You are placed where you are right now for a reason. I have been um, saying some prayers from this book which I'd highly recommend, called Liturgies for Hope. And there's one called A Prayer, A Liturgy for the Fear of Missing Out. And I was wondering if I finish, if we could stand. Uh, I'll invite the band to come back up, and I'll pray this over us. Come, O limitless God, into the gap between us and the places we long to be. Though our spirits were made for eternity, our bodies are bound up in time, and the finality of the present can feel like too much to bear. We long to rearrange time and space, chronology and cosmos, to sample the endless array of opportunities before us. We ache with curiosity to peer into moments we can't see. 
Perhaps this is our greatest act of trust, to release all that we will never experience and trust that being where we are is enough. Oh Lord, may we not be afraid of missing out, worrying that our lives may somehow diminish in value. May we not be afraid of missing our purpose, toiling frantically as though we were already behind, but may we trust the pace of our lives to you. For though we plan our steps, you infuse them with meaning. We trust you, O oh God, with all that we will never know. May we embrace the sacred rhythm of choice, perceiving when it's time to say yes and discerning when it's time to say no. May we not be afraid to forgo an event, an assignment, or a relationship if that's not the best use of our time, our gifts, or our energy. Grant us the humility to know when our presence is not required and open our eyes to your direction if we need to change course. May we hear your voice behind us saying, this is the way, walk in it. So here are our bodies, Lord. Here are our calendars. Here are our careers and accomplishments. We are your workmanship. Like clay, we are the malleable material in your hands. Form us now into handcrafted vessels, equipped to complete the good works you have prepared for us. All that we have done and left undone is yours. Everywhere we go and desire to go is yours. May we release ourselves from the burden of infinite unknowns and uncover the riches of joy hidden deep inside the hearts of contentment. Amen.